Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming back onto the show Tamara, sorry, Tamara McClintock Greenberg. Uh, she was a prior guest of the show back in October of 2020 when she spoke about her book. Uh, Treating Complex Trauma, Combined Theories and Methods. And she's back today with her follow-up book entitled The Complex PTSD Coping Skills Workbook, an evidence-based approach to manage fear and anger, build confidence, and reclaim your identity. I'd like to give you a brief introduction to uh, Tamara. Tamara McClintock-Greenberg is a clinical psychologist and renowned expert in the treatment of depression, anxiety, trauma, and more. Her work has been published in HuffPost, Psych Central, Psychology Today, the San Francisco Chronicle, and she has been featured in Forbes, USA Today, Newsweek, and New Avenue on PBS and the Washington Post. Tamara, welcome back. Thank you for having me. First of all, congratulations on the workbook. Thank you. You know, in my experience, authors often are eager to move on from a subject once they've written about it. You know, once the book has been published and they've done the speaking engagements and everything, they're, they're kind of done. But in your case, you seem to have taken all that you covered in your prior book and taken it further and put it into this workbook so that people can apply what you covered in your first, first book in their lives and in a very direct and practical way. How did you decide to even take on this task? Well, um, I was approached actually by New Harbinger to do it. Um, and it was like maybe a month after, yeah, because it was actually in the works when we were talking actually in our last interview. So, oh man, I was, I was ambivalent cause I was like, I mean, basically two books in two years, you know? Um, and, but then it was the pandemic and, other than my work, you know, which I enjoyed, there was really nothing else to do. So I'm like, I might as well, um, I might as well. And 
I mean, I'm being a bit glib because I, I think I think more sincerely. I think the the book, uh, the last book, was written more for professionals, and um, a book like a workbook is more accessible to everybody. And I think that you know, for me specifically, I have used just coincidentally, I have used New Harbinger workbooks for like 25 years. Um, I do practice more psychodynamically. And so for CBT and, um, you know, acronym, I call them acronym therapies, but for like acronym therapy based approaches, I, those are really important, you know, for people to have access to as well. And so I think workbooks can be a really great way for people to have access to some of the more, you know, practical techniques that, that I can do, but, um, you know, time is limited and there's only so much time we have. And I, I want people to have access to all the ways that they can feel better. And so I, I've always thought of workbooks as a really great adjunct. Um, and New Harbinger, I mean, they developed the workbook 45 years ago. They've been doing this a really long time and they're really, really good at it. What's the difference between writing a book such as the first one, which was more theoretical versus writing a workbook? The workbook was much more fun. Um, I loved thinking of exercises. I loved, you know, like just developing like the concrete tools. Um, I really loved that. And there was, you know, ways that I was able to also combine, like, for example, I know we're going to get to it, but in the chapter on dissociation, there's really four different models of understanding dissociation. And so for me, I was able to combine you know, the, the parts of the different theories together in a way that I think makes coherent sense for people um, in terms of understanding that really complex phenomena. So it was, I mean, it really was fun. Do you find that it changes your thinking once you have to write it in a voice that is meant for a workbook and that is meant to be uh, straightforward and easy to understand? No, you know, I mean, not really, because for me, I was raised in a lower class background from rural Minnesota. And so for me, I've always been translating, you know, like, I joke that like, you know, I don't understand 90% of psychoanalytic papers, mm -hmm. you know, um, I've always had to translate that stuff into language that makes sense to me from where I'm from, and how I think, you know, which tends to be in a more practical way. And so for me, I feel like, and it feels like a service kind of like I want it. I want all of psychology to feel more inclusive to people. And I think that sometimes our language can be really alienating and our theories can be really alienating. So who is this workbook for? It's for both, you know, clients, um, people who want to think about their trauma histories, get some tools for dealing with their trauma histories get some ideas about whether or not they'd like to get professional help. Um, there's a whole chapter on how to pick a therapist, which was a blast to write, you know, using Mick Cooper's and John Norcross's, you know, research and on um, psychotherapeutic efficacy. Um, that was just a blast. And I think there's some really great tips in there about how to look for a therapist. Cause it's really hard. Um, you know, I mean, there's, 
so many of us therapists yet it's really hard for clients to find people where there's a good fit. So, um, so it's for clients, but it's also, uh, you know, for therapists to use, you know, with clients in the way that I was describing before as an adjunct, you know, um, but, and, or to use with them, you know, um, doing some of the exercises together or thinking about some of the concepts together, I think, you know, I think can be useful for clinicians. And when you say as an adjunct, you mean as an adjunct to someone who's already in therapy, Yes. maybe doing it with their therapist or, or doing it on their own while they are also talking to their therapist. Yep, exactly. Okay. For someone who's never worked with a mental health workbook like this before, what, how does it work? I mean, what will they find inside? Yeah, well, I think of workbooks, um, and actually I think this way of, of most self-help books, I think they're meant to be used in, you know, uh, small doses, starting with, you know, whatever speaks to uh, the person who's, who's looking into it. So for example, for me, when I, as a clinician, have used workbooks, I have picked specific chapters for my clients and said, hey, I think you might benefit from this, you know, and I'll give them the workbook or I'll tell them where to buy it. And I tell them which chapter I think would be useful. And so I think, you know, for clients looking into the book, they should start with what feels not too overstimulating, not too overwhelming, and things that, that speak to them in terms of things that they'd like to understand better about themselves. So I know that we covered this in our first interview, but for listeners who are hearing you for the first time now, can can we revisit what the difference is between PTSD and complex PTSD, since the workbook is for people who deal with complex PTSD? Right. So regular, quote, regular or primary, what they call it now, primary PTSD um, it's associated with a limited number, usually one to two discrete traumatic events. Um, and symptoms of PTSD, as we all know, are things like flashbacks, nightmares, being jumpy or hypervigilant, um, feeling numb and avoiding thinking about the event. Complex PTSD, on the other hand, involves those symptoms, but... Um, the traumas usually start earlier. Trauma usually starts in childhood and then continues into adulthood. So complex PTSD is really the aggregate of a number of difficult life events and circumstances. And as such, the symptoms are, they can be much more severe and woven into personality. And so in addition to kind of primary PTSD symptoms, people will have difficulty managing intense emotions, um, difficulty finding relationships um, for of people who treat them well. And one thing that is associated with um, a very strong correlation with complex trauma uh, is betrayal trauma. And hmm. so, yeah, so betrayal trauma, as you know, is when somebody we love and depend on for our survival um, betrays our trust, exploits us, hurts us. And so relationships are particularly fraught for people who have complex trauma histories. And, and one way that I think about it is it's just, 
it's so hard to know like what people feel entitled, what people should feel entitled to in terms of how they're treated. And then the other thing with complex trauma, at least as I think of it, is it really is results in a form of identity theft. You know, people, when you're stressed early on, really early on, when you have a lot of adversity, it's very difficult to develop a relationship with your own mind. And if you don't have a relationship with your own mind, it's really no hard to know how to take care of yourself, how to figure out what you want. Um, a lot of people with complex trauma histories have trouble knowing what's meaningful to them in life, um, who they want to be around, what kind of careers, um, etc. And, and I'll say one more thing about it, that one way that I've understood how people adapt to hypervigilance, chronic hypervigilance, is I think, you know, hypervigilance is a way that we focus on the outside and not the inside. And it starts because of threat detection, right? You have to be wary of like what's outside of you. And I think that one way that complex PTSD impacts identity and personality is that one gets so used to being hypervigilant that there's always an external focus and there's not an internal focus. And so for treatment and for the workbook, really, it's it's really, I think, for a lot of people, an introduction to thinking about what is in one's own mind and having less, or at least trying to learn how to have less um, pressure to feel focused on external factors. You know, we're we're going to jump into a couple of the topics in the book in a moment, but before we do, I, I'm thinking about <clears throat> listeners who may, may be candidates for this kind of work, but they've never thought of themselves as having undergone trauma. And, and so how is one to know the difference between having gone through life experiences that were, you know, difficult, but normative and having gone through traumas? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent, excellent question because, you know, the physiological and neurological stresses of trauma make it so that it's hard to remember um, aspects of one's history. Right. I mean, a lot of people I see, you know, they don't remember anything till high school or college you know, and some of those memories can come back, but, you know, by and large, it's, it's tough, you know? Um, and so, and I'm not someone who focuses on memory recovery anyway, and that's not something that I'm, I'm trying to overly advocate here, but I'm saying that a lot of people can go through life, not really stopping to think about ways that they've been treated or mistreated, you know, and I, I'm sure you know this phenomena as a, ther a therapist who does long-term work, you know, you might be seeing someone for five years and then they tell you about something awful that happened to them. I mean, something really traumatic that it just never occurred to them That's that right. it was traumatic or that it impacted them. And, and that was actually the brilliance of Judith Herman's work, right? She's the one who kind of coined the term complex PTSD. And, and I think she was the one who originated the idea that people with complex trauma histories, they don't link traumatic events to their current suffering. That mm. link doesn't exist for them. And so that is one thing that, you know, a workbook or therapy can give someone is to be able to understand, oh, this is why I struggle in the way that I do, as opposed to I'm crazy. Why am I so sensitive? Sure, sure, sure. I, I want to jump into one of the chapters in the workbook 
on dissociation. Uh, it's entitled Identifying, Understanding, and Managing Dissociation. And let's first start with that word because I think lots of people use the word dissociation now. Maybe they know what it means, maybe they don't. Could you clarify what is dissociation? Yeah, well, it's it's a great question. And, um, you know, in terms of the definition, I'm going to give you kind of the, I think, the consensus definition on dissociation. I, I will say that different researchers have different ideas about how people become dissociative um, and the causes of it. And it can that can be quite controversial and fraud in some academic circles. But generally speaking, dissociation exists on a continuum of normal to excessive. And so normal dissociation is something like you're driving down the freeway and all of a sudden you realize you missed your exit because you were lost in thought. That would be an example of normal dissociation. Um, daydreaming, being lost in thoughts, that's a, a kind of normal dissociation too. Some researchers actually think that people who are smart um, may be more prone to dissociation um, because it's, a, it's linked with creativity um, in some research, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, and dissociation starts off as a way to manage stress though. Um, and so as dissociation goes from normal to excessive, what you see is uh, people just leaving situations. So something bad is happening. And, you know, like the classic way this is depicted is in a movie or television is somebody leaves their body and they're looking down on themselves. I mean, that phenomenon gets reported, but it's really more that people just kind of evaporate. They just sort of disappear. Um, they don't, and they might, and they won't remember. They won't remember certain events because of dissociation. And so, when dissociation becomes a problem, it starts to interfere with functioning. So there can be some pleasurable things about dissociation. Like let's say you're in a, a really boring meeting and you can't stand the person leading the meeting. They're driving you crazy. And so you just make eye contact, but you're somewhere else in your head. It's like a magic trick, right? Like it looks like you're listening, but you're not really there. So that can be pleasurable. But as dissociation continues what you see is people feel numb, disconnected. They don't feel like they have control over their internal or external environments. And the biggest thing, I think the biggest problem about dissociation is that it makes it hard to learn from experience. So in a relationship, for example, if you're not being treated well, your partner's disrespectful, and instead of being able to sort of tolerate the emotions with it, you just leave and go somewhere else and you don't remember it or you don't allow yourself to think about it, then you might put yourself in the same situation over and over and over again. And so that's how, that's why I say to people that it's important to address dissociation because it helps us learn how to take better care of ourselves and to get more of what we need. So to be clear, so dissociation is like a, a cutting off of consciousness for a certain part of our experience. And so when you say too much of it doesn't allow people to learn from experience, would you say that that's because they're not really building a memory bank of yeah. experiences because they're not really present for the experience in the first place. So they're not downloading it into their minds and they therefore they're more prone to go through the same face, the same traumatic thing over and over again, or the same stressor. Over exactly. And over again. Yeah. That's a, that's a perfect way of saying it. 
You know, I what I love about this workbook is the lists that you include because it gives readers a chance to see things that they may not have expected. So on page 66 and 67, you have uh, a list entitled Indicators of Normal and Excessive Dissociation. So these are everyday things that some people experience. And I want to highlight some of them. I mean, some of them are pretty straightforward. You have a tendency to daydream. You lose track of time. You don't remember the bulk of your childhood. Um, but then there's another one here. You learn very quickly. Why is uh-huh. that an indicator of dissociation, you think? Well, that's based on the research that I was that I was referring to that has found that dissociative folks tend to be brighter <laughs> and they tend to be really good learners. And and I, I think one way we could think about that actually, though, is if you think of my hypothesis about hypervigilance being woven into personality, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because hypervigilance is a cognitive skill, mm. you know, like you're really good at picking up what's in your environment. And so that could be theoretically associated with learning quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's another there's another, re- another really interesting one here. Many of us have clothes for different moods, but you have more dramatic differences in your outfits than most. Right. How do you make sense of that one? Well, so that gets into the territory of people who have um, different personas or what some literature refers to as different self-states. Um, I think within certainly within, I think, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, the idea of different self-states has become kind of normal, that we all have different self-states and we all have different personas to a mild degree. Um, For some people with um, really severe trauma histories who are especially dissociative, they have more dramatic differences um, in, in the way they can appear. Um, and they may p- appear different, you know, at different times. Um, and so whether or not we want to label that as dissociative identity disorder is certainly fraught with a ton of controversy. Um, I tend to, and, you know, and I talk about this in, in both of the trauma books, I, I tend to go with, I think what actually what psychoanalysis has gotten beautifully right about this is just kind of dealing with whoever shows up and not doing things that promote further fragmentation. So naming alters and all that stuff, I tend to advise staying away from. You know, I I think of Philip Bromberg, who tells us that we all have a little bit of dissociation. We we engage in it as as a way of moving through the world. But would you say that you know, the people who maybe dress differently or have different kinds of handwritings at different times. Yeah. Is, is, is the problem when in one state, they seem to have very little access to or knowledge about the other state. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that's true. I mean, I, I think people have like vague awarenesses, but yeah, it's just under stress. And, and this is where, Actually, if we, you know, want to talk about theory even more, I mean, and this is this is controversial for the people who espouse the trauma model of dissociation, but this is where the idea of suggestibility comes in. Freud talked about that in terms of his early, you know, his early patients in the 1800s, late 1800s, they were all trauma survivors. They were all very dissociative. Um, although I don't think he used that word, but, you know, he talked about hysteria, but they were all incredibly dissociative. And, you know, one thing about trauma and 
clever people who cope well enough with trauma experiences is you learn how to give people what they want. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I think of dissociation is it's like becoming a really good shapeshifter. You know, you're really good. I think it's, and that's an adaptive form of dissociation. It can definitely get in the way, but I think that lens that you're talking about of like becoming very different people at different times. I think part of it was, is that people learn how to, okay, this person needs me to be this person right now. So I'm just going to do that. And then I think it becomes, you know, uh, something that people gets ingrained into people's, you know, Core identities and then they just start doing that a lot i think that's one possible mechanism of that and i imagine that's how then they lose a sense of it's like you said their own mind yeah or a relationship with their own mind because i imagine a lot of this doesn't happen consciously and and that makes sense that actually have another item on the list um oh where is it uh i don't remember what it is but it it says that something about being very uh you tend to believe what others have told you about your experience. Yes, exactly. So that's, yes. And I think that's really connected with dissociation because it's an out, I mean, a coping with trauma, being hypervigilant, being dissociative, it is an out of mind experience. You can't be in your mind because it's too scary. There's mm-hmm. too many difficult thoughts and feelings. And so you go into the minds of others. And again, I think this can be really adaptive, you know, really adaptive trauma survivors, you know, they make great therapists, they make great doctors, they make great lawyers, because they know how to meet people exactly where they're at. It's just that if you do it too much, you lose sight of what you need. And so that's why I try to get people to at least pay attention to it. Because a lot of people who are dissociative, it's hard for them to articulate. It's hard for them to articulate what their experience is. Because as you say, it does deal with the nature of consciousness. It's really hard for us to understand. Um, and additionally, in terms of people in our fields, I think that, you know, the biggest study done on this, Bethany Brand, I believe, was one of the authors, the average person with dissociation sees eight to 10 therapists before um, the therapist recognizes that there might be something dissociative going on. That's right. It can be so hard to detect. Yeah. Um, I, I want to move to chapter seven. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. It's entitled Dealing with Suicidal Thoughts and Feelings. Um, it's such a sensitive, but also an urgent topic. And I want to start, I, I want to go to a paradox that I think you highlighted really well in, in the opening of the chapter, where you point out how sometimes for some people, suicidal thoughts can actually be a way that they keep themselves going in life. How is that so? Yeah, well, it's it's an escape route, I guess. If things get so bad, I can always leave. Because again, the nature of trauma is being trapped, being forced into doing things you don't want to do. And so you know, that continues into life where it's easy to feel trapped a lot. Relationships can feel smothering. Life demands can feel oppressive. And so um, some people have, you know, either literal or just in their heads, thoughts around, okay, well, if it gets bad, I can leave. I remember one woman I worked with for 20 years, she always had a stash of pills um, in her dresser drawer, just in case. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a way that she soothed herself. It was a way that she kept herself going paradoxically because and she not she, using the pills and not using the pills because it gave her this sense of control that she could leave if she had to. So, so are you saying that there, and, and this is not at all to, to turn away from the people who do attempt and do, who do commit suicide, but would it be correct to say that there's a fair number of people who will have plenty of suicidal thoughts and may never attempt suicide because a suicidal, just, just having the suicidal thought is all that they need. Yeah. Just knowing that there's an, there's an out. That is definitely true for some people. And I don't recall the statistic, but something recently came out. I might've written it in that chapter. I can't remember, but there's a, really big majority of people who have had suicidal thoughts. So they are not, they're not uncommon at all. What, what we worry about is when the thoughts become images and think, you know, practicing in your head, how you might do it and developing a plan on how you might do it. And then we see that a different kind of thinking takes over. Like in the suicide literature, they talk about a suicidal trance or a suicidal mode. And it's a a very different way. It's almost like people who've been in that state have described to me that they feel like something foreign has just taken over their minds. So it is very different. To your point, it is really different than um, suicidal ideation as it progresses along the spectrum towards an actual, you know, possible suicide attempt, you know, the, the way one's mind work changes in pretty fundamental ways, at least to the extent that we understand it. Sure. I actually had it in my notes to ask you about suicidal trans suicidal mode, because it seems like that's, that's when maybe there really is a concern. Can you say more about what, what is that? How do you know when one is in a suicidal trance or mode? Well, and that's it's such an excellent question because often we don't know. So, for example, I mean, I'm sure you've heard these stories, people who seem completely fine and then suddenly they're a victim of suicide and everybody around them is like, I had no idea. And so it's something intensely personal that takes over. People become consumed with the idea of ending their life and they think about it all the time. It takes over kind of all of their waking moments. One person that I worked with who had attempted suicide had in their head practiced the method, like just visualizing it over and over and over again. And then the trance kind of mode state was there. And by the time they did make the attempt, you know, when they were, saved, um, found and, and recovered, they really didn't understand why they were feeling suicidal in the first place. You so know? I, about the trance thing, yeah. is it, do you refer to it as a trance because by trance, do you mean that again, going back to dissociation, that they're kind of cut off from everything else in their life that might want, might, might want them to, to want, might make them want to stay alive from all the things that are important to them, that they're in, a specific kind of, you know, self-state or mode with, with yeah. certain blinders on? 
That's a great question. Um, and I don't know that I know the answer to that. I mean, the terms mode and trance come from the, the suicide literature specifically. I think it's a really great possibility that you're raising that it is a kind of dissociative phenomena. I've wondered if it's maybe like, um, also like thoughts change, like if there's a thought disorder component, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to study. Um, and I think there's so little that we really understand about it, to be honest. I, I appreciate that your workbook tackles this and gives people some tools and, and some information that they can use to, to deal with these thoughts. Can, can you give us a, some examples about what, what, people can do that the, what they might find in the workbook that would help them to deal with these thoughts when they come on that might help them not just to stay state to stay safe but to feel better yeah yeah i think the biggest thing and this is easy to say it sounds very cliche but i, I do think it's true i think finding somebody that you can talk to about it um and you know sometimes people find it easier to talk to people who are not close to them. Mm -hmm. Um, people who are more like peripherally in their lives, but finding someone to talk to about it, because it is one of those things. If you say it out loud, it does lose, it loses some of its power and control. Um, but also I think talking about it is the beginning of finding meaningful support. And so, you know, as you know, in our fields, we're taught from the first day of graduate school that social support is the thing we're supposed to tell everybody to get. But meaningful social support is really hard to come by, um, especially if you have a history of trauma and it's hard to pick people who are going to treat you well. And so I think finding meaningful social support finding people who can be empathic and supportive and help you help and plan with you and think of ways for you to take care of yourself. Um, I think that's really key. I I really do because it just takes the loneliness out of it. It's such a lonely being suicidal is such a lonely experience. And so it's really important to make that less lonely if possible. You know, because I imagine a lot of people might be listening to this interview and feeling inspired to to get help and to find a therapist. Let's let's go back to where we started. You said that uh, you have some tips for finding a good therapist. What are some of them? Yeah, well, um, one thing that's 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 in the book is, um, and this isn't anything I developed, but I got permission from John Norcross and Mick Cooper, who came up with actually a great inventory um, on how to how to look for a therapist, and so that's actually available online for free. Um, and it's also it's called the C NIP C N I P is the acronym, um, and uh, that's there, and I think that's useful. One of the things that I add to that though, is I think, I really think it's important for trauma survivors to state at the outset, if they're aware of their trauma histories, especially to think about and to talk with a prospective therapist about whether or not they want to get into talking about trauma. And this is really important for a number of reasons, but you mean, you mean patients asking potential therapists, do you therapists want to get into trauma or you mean examining themselves in themselves, whether they want to talk about the trauma. 
Yeah. Thinking about, well, actually, let me be more concise. I think it's important for trauma survivors to know if their therapist is going to push them to talk about trauma. Uh That's what I'm trying to say. Because I think what goes wrong in, in literally every therapeutic modality, this isn't picking on any one school at all, is all, all modalities, whether it's formal exposure therapy or psychoanalysis, we're expecting at some point the patient's going to talk about trauma. And um, some people, I, I have become convinced after almost 30 years, some people can never do that. And so I think we need to figure out ways to work with people in the here and now with an ear to the past. But, but trauma survivors really need to feel in control of when they talk about their histories. And so they need to find a therapist who really is supportive of that and compassionate and understanding of that. That would be so my biggest a, tip. So you feel a person can get better or improve their lives in therapy, even if they don't necessarily talk directly about their trauma? I do. I mean, I think that if we believe in, you know, the psychoanalytic idea that transference is always being relived in the presence, right? I mean, the unconscious dynamics are always repeating themselves. If we believe that and we think that way, then we can work in the here and now knowing that what's going on in current relationships is, is both here, but also in the past, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I think there's a way of listening for that and talking about that, that can be really healing. I mean, I think for some people, it's useful to, to go back and, and link things, you know, kind of in direct ways. Um, but I, I worry that that becomes a bit too intellectual for people. You know, you hear these stories of people, right, who are in analysis for decades and it's all intellectual. They're talking about all about their histories, but they aren't really any different than when they started. And I think, I think emotion is more important than understanding intellectual links from the past to the present. I think if that comes up organically, I'm there, right? I'm there. But I I just think, I just think for so many clients, they have just felt really pressured by people in our field. And that's because I think, you know, our training, I, I think most of us were trained, the trauma survivor has to develop a narrative, right? I mean, that was what we all heard. But, but what if the narrative is jagged and fragmented? then how do you put those pieces together or tell a client to put those pieces together without making them feel ashamed? Like there's something wrong with them, right? Cause mm-hmm. how do you develop a narrative if there isn't really a narrative? So I think, I don't know. One of the things that I'm always thinking about is how myself and, and all of us in the field can do things better, you know, to, to be more compassionate to people um, that we're trying to take care of and help. This has been a wonderful conversation. You know, before you go, I wanted to ask you one last question, which is what you're working on now or what you've got coming up next. <laughs> well, I, I am I am now resting a bit. Um, but I am I am interested. I am one of my other specialties in previous writing has been in health like the field of health psychology and um, actually blending health psychology and psychoanalysis to some extent. And I am interested in thinking about like in a more concrete, direct way about the healing power of relationships and um, kind of looking at that maybe as a topic to write about. There's so much great research on it that I'd love to translate, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to folks. So, Well, it's always great to talk to you. 
Thank you for coming on the show. Let me remind uh, listeners who you are. I've been speaking to Tamara McClintock-Greenberg, author of the, Compl the Complex PTSD Coping Skills Workbook, An Evidence-Based Approach to Manage Fear and Anger, Build Confidence, and Reclaim Your Identity. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you so much for having me.